Oh, it's all right, Marina. We can stop here for a minute. I think we've lost him. Oh, hello, everyone. Um, sorry, no time for introductions today. We're currently on the run from one of the most fearsome monsters in the entire Jerry Anderson universe. And we've also got another very long episode to get through today. It's our very first UFO, and one that a certain Sterling Silifant was asking about on Twitter not too long ago. Here's Mindbender. Oh, no, here it comes. Let's get out of here, Marina. Come on, run. Howdy, folks. No, shoo, shoo. Welcome home. So for, what's this, the third time, the third time now, the randomizer has thrown up a new series, starting with my absolute favourite episode of that series. It did it with New Captain Scarlet and Grey Skulls, did it with Terror Hawks and Two for the Price of One, and now we have UFO, Mindbender, my absolute favourite episode of this show, and I know for a lot of people their favourite episodes are either this or Time Lash. Um... These, these opening titles, again, are just something so, so brilliant. They're so slickly edited. And I, I have heard comments, quite a few comments over the years, that this opening title sequence doesn't necessarily reflect the show itself. That the show is, is far more sort of downbeat and um, perhaps in, in closer in tone to the, the end title sequence. Over the years, I've definitely come to agree with that, but uh, still love this opening. It's really something special, especially this editing. Bang! Brilliant. Minus ten, nine. This is uh, a sort of interesting opening to to this episode. Because you're not entirely sure what's going on. They think there's a UFO out there, but they're not entirely sure. What I also like coming to this off the back of Space 1999 last week is how essentially unprepared even after you know 10 years of sweat and sacrifice and all the rest of it shadow don't still don't have all the equipment they need and ultimately this ufo is spotted by nina barry standing at a window with a pair of binoculars it's yeah they've got one woman with a pair of binoculars three interceptors each with one missile I would love to know what happened to Shadow after this series finished. If launch the interceptors. If there was an expansion of the organization, which there probably absolutely needed to be. But you would think that as the commander of the base, Nina Barry has better things to do than look out the window with binoculars. She should really be passing this off to somebody else. But it gives the Laura something to do, so that's always good. And we're making good use here of reused. Uh, model stock footage. I think most of all this model stuff is from uh, Flight Path, perhaps a little from Ordeal. Again, as with in you know, Joe 90 where they made an entire airport out of stock footage in, in Double Agent. It makes sense if you've got all this material, you may as well reuse it. Congratulations to the interceptor pilots. They didn't get near it. I want to know why a UFO gets within four miles of moon base then destroys itself. That's a very effective uh, line to end the, the opening teaser on. And I do like the the shift in the second half of UFO to Well no no not 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 just the second half. It was occasionally an element of stories in the first half, but this this idea that there's a central mystery that we have to unravel of why this UFO has, has destroyed itself. Again, I'm not entirely sure why we absolutely need to have the commander of the organization and his second-in-command right there on the scene. Presumably there are 
competent, trained people fully capable to do this, but uh, he's the star the of the show, darn it. We've completed the search in this area and can find no UFO wreckage, nor Conroy and Dale making out. It also means that they've had to sort of wait around for Straker and Foster to actually get to the moon before they can investigate, which would seem to be sort of counterproductive. If you want to know what's happened, you really need to know ASAP, surely. Home, James, and don't spare the horses. Straker and Foster are very... Um, throughout the, the second, the Pinewood episodes especially, they always seem to be wearing mascara. There is a, a bit of eye makeup going on with them. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, and I'm not entirely convinced that it it works. But uh, there we are. In, in terms of Shadow Moon Base um, fashion statements, I suppose it's quite a minor thing that they're doing there. Sylvia, baby. This is the second episode to include Al Mancini playing uh, astronaut Conroy here. And I think it's one of those things that um, this show and Space 1999 and various others of this era, they would have an actor in for one episode. Um, Star Trek is another good example of this. They have an actor in for one episode. Then three or four episodes later, they cast the same actor again without realising that this person played a role in the series before. So they just say, oh, okay, it's the same character. And I really like that sort of loose approach to continuity. You you see the same faces cropping up throughout all of these shows, um, sometimes sort of drifting between departments. But it does, it does lend a greater sense of continuity. And now here we are in the Moonbase control sphere. Conroy is confronted by three Mexican banditos. And already this is streets ahead from the, the earliest episodes, because not only did we end the teaser with a mystery, we now have another mystery in the, what's happened to Conroy here. Why is he seeing the, uh, the control room ladies as uh, Mexican banditos? Where's Dale? What the hell have you done with Dale? Cooey, I'm over here. Oh, I promised myself I wouldn't say. I had, I can't, I can't let that go. I'm sorry. I, I can't not respond to that. And um, this Dale is about to earn the, the punishment that perhaps, this Dale should have had for for making that joke. And again, this is so, this is so stylishly and interestingly directed. I think this is a Ken Turner episode. Oh, there goes Mexican bandito Dale. Coughing up blood as he chokes to to death, and this was um, I seem to remember when this was shown on the BBC, they had a thing for snipping out blood and language from these le later episodes because there was quite a bit of it, um, especially in this one. We you see people get shot; they don't just like fall down; they fall down and then they're spluttering blood, and you see it pouring all over the. Uh, the the floor or the um oh where's where's Conroy gonna end up getting killed on those on one of those inflatable beds considering that Moonbase Shadow Moonbase is supposedly quite small it's always impressed me how in episodes like this and Kill Straker they seem to make really good use of the sets when there's like a a chase scene or a, a shootout and here we we're now having a, a shootout on a Wild West stage and uh, Straker and Foster are also dressed as bandits. I seem to remember Sylvia Anderson telling a story where they brought some American executives over to see the show, and this was the scene they were producing at the the time. And uh, Ed Bishop and Mike Billington are 
you know, covered in dirt and grit and looking like western tough guys. That must have been an embarrassing day for her. Oh, but now this interceptor pilot is going to make a, a grab for Conroy's guns. He's not made it. But he's going to escape unharmed because Straker and Foster are actually just Foster. He's going to murder Conroy. Shoot him in the back and blood pouring out of his mouth. Yeah, notice in this episode as well, whenever any any shadow personnel go mad and they have to be you know, killed before they can do any more trouble, it's always Foster who ha has to put a bullet in their back. Like, Straker gives him the nod and he has to oh, do yeah, it. Nina. Sit down. Well, I asked him what's the matter, what's wrong, something like that. This is a short scene where um, Straker and Foster are talking to, to Nina Barry about what happened with Conroy. I really like it, though, because so just of how protective Straker seems of Nina. He's sure almost got his arm around her. And I think he's just got the arm around the back of her chair. But it is quite quite a revealing insight into the character when you take into account the events of Subsmash. And I will get back to that in a second, but Straker and Foster are now wearing identical costumes as part of this sort of unintentional subplot that I read into this that Straker was essentially just molding Foster into his own image. We now have identical matching tan turtlenecks. Uh, but yeah, going back to the Straker and Nina thing, they were very close in uh, Subsmash and, you know, sort of there was almost borderline admission of kind of well, not love, I don't know what was going on there. But this is the woman who indirectly is responsible for the breakup of his marriage, very indirectly. But he was the woman she was meeting when she was setting when he was setting up Shadow. His wife uh, hired a private detective and got pictures of them together, and that was the end of that. And it's kind of sweet that Straker would would have that kind of relationship with with at least one person on his staff. Nuclear attack? That might do it if it was a big one. Although Miss Eland is always always there for him as well to uh, to listen. I'm sure she'd uh, be very supportive if he ever needed it. General Henderson, Baker, I got to kick your ass. Do you know uh, Colonel Lake? That's a brilliant way to get out of. Uh, now, that <laughs> you you, the show really wants to be even more grown up than it already is with all the violence and death and people having their organs pillaged. Now we're going to bring in bad language, but we're not quite going to bring in uh, anything that's uh, too much for this era. Only one shipment arrived yesterday, stationary. Then get it moving, eh, Beaver? It's a joke. Stationary. And you are going to get... Punched in the stomach for such a bad joke. There you go. This is Beaver James, as played by uh, Charles Tingwell. Um, another very famous uh, Supermarionation voice artist, played Dr. Tony Grant in The Thunderbirds Are Go, and was, uh, I think, did a couple more episodes of Thunderbirds, and was Dr. Fawn, Captain Brown, and various others in the first 12 episodes of Captain Scarlet. And speaking of um, returning faces in this episode, right here, Beaver has shot a security guard, played by Stanley McGee, I think his name is, McGee, something like that. He's been comforted by another security guard, played by John Lyons, and these two both appeared together in the episode ESP. John Lyons also appeared in, I think, Time Lash, but it is like an odd sort of vague reunion. These two guards are sharing the screen together one last time. We are here. 
He killed the guard here. Commander. I'm looking at these corridor sets now. Where from? They are looking a bit ropey compared to the earlier episodes. The earlier episodes, everything was was perfectly white. Now, I don't know if it's because it, in HD, but you can see there's cracks in the beams and on the walls. There's paint scuffs all over the place. I'm imagining this may have been partly due to having to cart everything from uh, MGM Borenwood over to Pinewood for... But he's just killed a guard near the medical centre. Dr. Jackson is asking if he can keep the body as part of your quote-unquote arrangement. He's right outside. Yeah, this is uh, John Lyons playing a security guard who has gone on to have a, a very long and very career. I think he's probably most famous for... Uh, some Thunderbirds music here. For playing a... I don't know what his character is in A Touch of Frost, but he's... Uh, he was in that for, I think, the whole whole show. Um, currently, oh no, not currently, but recently appeared in uh, in Panto with Marina Sirtis, I believe. I do really like um, what Charles Stingwell is doing here with Beaver James. He's, I don't know why, but he's he's got a limp. I'm assuming it's from a, a previous injury. I think they mentioned that he, he crashed a transporter or something, and uh, that's probably how he was injured. But it it makes the character it gives the character physical limitation but he's still a threat because he's he's got his gun and now he's got he's got um virginia lake at gunpoint dragging her into uh, the control room but it is nice that uh, even up to the end of ufo they were still bringing back super marionation era voice artists and uh, i think they did so again through the protectors quite a bit too all right they have no choice already killed twice. Yeah, but I shot Conroy. Can't you shoot him? Now! If only I'd thought. Waited. You weren't to know how could you. Like this is a slightly um, mishandled plot point here, because they're sort of, suddenly, they're going, oh, we should have waited. We should have, oh, there should have been something we, we, we really should have noticed. This is because his gun was apparently not loaded. He he used up all the the shots. Start seeing aliens. And it does it does get mentioned a few minutes when um, when General Henderson comes back. But I don't think it needed to be held back. I think they should have just dumped it into this scene and said. No help to us. Beaver had been. It might have been more of a sort of emotional impact of sort of oh. Maybe even if they'd done it in the scene where he's killed, and then they picked up the gun and said, oh, he didn't have any shots left. We didn't need to do that. Instead, it's kind of, by the time you find out, it's not really got much of a, a punch anymore. You're a hard man to pin down, it's Straker. And here we have another notable uh, guest star. Stuart Damon, um, probably best known to World Cup TV fans for playing Craig Sterling in The Champions for ITC in the 60s, and also uh, to American audiences for General Hospital, and I'm trying to think of his character's name, even though I've never seen the show. I kind of think that I know his name. I want script approval. Is his name Alan? Was his name Alan in General Hospital? I believe he was killed and came up as a ghost or something, but... Uh, Anyway, he's he's always come across as a very uh, very nice chap, uh, very very well suited to this sort of action series stuff. 
as you can obviously see in the Champions, which was kind of a shame that uh, he didn't do too much more for ITC. He did do three episodes of Space 1999, one in the first season, where he played an Eagle pilot who got zapped into unconsciousness very quickly, and another, he did the two-parter in the second season, Bring Us a Wonder, where he was Tony Anholt's brother. Guido. You know, these headaches that you've been suffering from, they could be caused by a swelling between the ears. This middle section of the episode actually seven, looking at your rushes. kind of feels a bit aimless, at least on first viewing. I mean, the studio stuff very rarely tied into the the main thrust of, of the story. But we've gone from, like, the UFO exploding in the beginning, the Conroy chase on the moon, Beaver James losing control. Now we're just kind of treading water a little bit through the middle section. Sky one's closing. We should know any second. But we now have the triumphant heroic return via stock footage of a missing character. Captain Lou Waterman, there he is, formerly captain of uh, Skydiver 1, one of the many characters to disappear through uh, the transition from MGM Borenwood to Pinewood. Uh, as with Alec Freeman and Gay Ellis and uh, a lot of the rest of them, no explanation you, given Skywalker. where he went. But it was it was a nice touch here that they slipped this one brief silent reaction shot of him in there, as if to say, you know, we don't have the actor anymore, but the character is still out there doing stuff. Honest. Replacement interceptor for moon base. I wonder how much that's going to cost. Well, judging by the way they replace eagles on the moon, you've probably got all the uh, materials up there to to build interceptors willy-nilly. Talk to John Koenig, he knows the secret of uh, building vehicles under limited resources. Cowboys? Beaver James thought he saw aliens. See, the way Conroy fought, you think that maybe in his mind he thought he saw... It's a very subtle way that this... Uh, the cause of all these uh, hallucinations, which is this little rock that was in the exploded UFO is being passed from one to another. We see Conroy playing with it on Moonbase very briefly before he goes mad. We're told Beaver James inspected Conroy's effects, and now Straker's just picked it up out of his uh, out of his box and is just sort of toying with it and throwing it up and down in his hand, which is not unusual for Straker to to sort of fiddle with things like that. I remember in the first episode he's doing something similar with the. Uh, Briefcase bracelet thing uh, that he was wearing when he was uh, injured in the car crash. All right, General Almighty Henderson. This is a spectacular bit of acting between Ed Bishop and Grant Taylor. You, they've sort of mellowed by this point in the series. They hated each other in the beginning. They've sort of mellowed by this point, but here. I'm really seeing you for the first time. You don't care, do you? You really don't care. That's just fantastic, and it's... Oh, I wish... I wish this show could have been... more serialised, if, if there could have been character development like this that actually developed this relationship, rather than just sort of whatever episode happened to randomly come up. But that moment, right there... Very, very nice. Where the director yells, cut. How was it for you? Oh, okay, I guess. Mm -hmm. right. And just wanders onto the set, and Straker is left standing there, thinking, what the hell is going on? That is just... I think that is one of my favourite moments in any television show ever. Just having a director yell cut and all the the characters just walk off set. Any way you want. See you later. 
Paul. This is such a fantastic way to to spend the second half of this episode. It is such a brilliant idea, as always, to have Straker as the focus of the drama. To have him going through any kind of hallucination would be just be absolutely brilliant because Ed would do such a sterling job as he always did with this show. But the fact that he is imagining his world as being a television show about an organization designed to to deal with alien invaders. The fact also that the show, the base itself, has always been set under a film studio, and he can now go off into that world of the film studio, which is a real film studio. This is Pinewood Studios. And I have to believe that this must have been such a eureka moment when whoever wrote this episode, and I can't remember who it was, came up with it. I would like to believe that they thought of it early on and said, oh no, let's let's hold it back for a really special, special episode. Somehow I doubt that would would have been the case because the early episodes didn't necessarily put that kind of planning into the storytelling to the extent why to the extent where I really don't know why Shadow HQ Shadow Control is based under a film studio it never really added anything in the early episodes but this episode shows there was potential there to really play with that element of the format i mean what is who is harlington it's Harlington Straker Studios. Who the heck is Harlington? I assume that he is someone who sort of has more to do with the day-to-day running of the place than Straker does, but Straker is very often seen as the man running the studio in addition to the uh, to Shadow Control underneath. And I remember, I think it was one of the... The first UFO novelizations said that Straker is intentionally trying to make bad movies... In, in order to sort of avoid people looking too closely at the studio. And every time the studio has a major hit, he gets really annoyed. Which I think would be a fantastic thing if they'd ever mentioned it on the show. Just like, you know, let's get together and make a load of bad movies so nobody pays us any attention. Oh, wait, we're making hit after hit after hit. It's brilliant. I'm afraid Mr. Straker is engaged. I want to see him. I'll call you back. It's also a fantastic idea to to take Straker out of his comfort zone. You know, he is, as um, Patrick Allen's character in Timelash called him, the big man. He knows the whole shadow setup. He knows all these people, and to now have them saying, you know, you're nobody, go away. You're not allowed in there. Who do you think you are? You're not the head of the studio. You're just some actor making a... And I, I don't know if it's... We're ready to run, Mr. Byrne meant to be a bad sci-fi show that um, the, the Stuart Damon character is the star of but again it's just so it's the show has not only become self-aware it's like it's taken a sledgehammer to the whole idea of the fourth wall and we are now insanely in a viewing theatre with Straker watching rushes of traumatic events of his own life This is a fantastic idea, and yet it's so simple to achieve as well, because this is essentially just like a a flashback segment. 
we're watching the events of um, the Identified teaser again. Um, not relevant to this episode at all, other than that we know this is a traumatic event in Straker's life where he, he almost got killed. Oh. oh, Mike's the name, remember? I've only been your co-star for two years. Again, that's such a brilliant idea that these are these are like the real actors just suddenly stopping the show and saying, "Hey, do you remember when this thing happened? We filmed that. Did you like it? Did you like it? I think it'll make a great episode." And so many of the shows that I love have a character who the writers always like to to torment, to put under extreme pressure. And I think the very best episodes of UFO are the ones where Straker is pushed to the absolute limit. Because Ed Bishop always rises to the occasion spectacularly. My son. And now we have the most horrifying thing, potentially, in this entire series, of this man who has gone through the trauma of seeing his son be hit by a car and ultimately, despite his very best efforts, being unable to prevent his child from dying. He now has to watch that moment again. Wait for me, Dad. As if it's not real. As if it doesn't mean anything. And the fact that he's got Paul Foster, sorry, Mike, there, right beside him. Mary. Sort of making, like, sarcastic noises and comments as if to say, oh, I wouldn't have done that. It's just... It is heartbreaking to watch this man reliving the absolute worst moment of... A life that's been full of awful moments, and he can't do anything about it. I never want to see you again. This is also such a, an interesting way to revisit the show's earliest episodes, because now we're filming at Pinewood. It kind of feels almost like the earlier MGM Borenwood episodes almost never happened. Take my, my memories. My life, my soul, and stick it up on that screen! Because so many of the characters that were involved have just gone without explanation. You would think they might want to avoid calling attention to that, but instead it's like, no, no, no. You're part of a nightmare. That is not as important as putting Straker through absolute hell once again. Ooh, and that's another very real looking slap across the face that Michael Billington just got from, from Ed Bishop there. He's not bothered anymore. By after Kill Straker, he's had like he got like six or seven slaps there. He's used to it. Um, I'm starting to question now, though. So we know that ultimately we know that the uh, the little jewel rock thing that was left behind in the wreckage of the UFO is responsible for these mass hallucinations. But um, how I, I would be fascinated to know how exactly. That rock fits into the whole whatever the aliens actually are. Oh, we have a sign saying Century 21 Props Limited. Red lights up, Mr. Byrne. Very nice to see. But it's just like, were, were the aliens actually sitting down with this rock and saying, right, we want to make him absolutely freak out? How did they find out that they had this rock? Or did they create this rock specially in their labs? Again, anything to do with the aliens, it always comes back to there are more questions than answers. But now we have perhaps 
one of the highlights of this episode is Straker wandering around the UFO set and we get some idea of what they actually would have looked like and where they would have sat within the studio. I'm assuming that this this studio is very much... There's an old man sitting in the background. Is that... I wonder if that's anyone... Anyone related to the production anyway. Yeah, we're now seeing the Skydiver set and a lovely shot here of um, Dolores Mantez and Aisha Bruff on the Moonbase control sphere and we pull up and we see the top of the set, we see the section of wall that isn't there so they can get the cameras in. It's such... It's... I hate to say this word because I don't think this word is, um, is necessarily used appropriately, but it's almost fan service. It's like, hey, you're... You ever wondered how this show is put together? Well, let's take you on a tour of the set. You can see how each of the sets match up with each other and, and where they are on the soundstage. It's just... I wish someone had taken a camera while they were making this episode and just wandered around and filmed more. This is such a, a fun part of the episode. I wish there was more of it. We need time! This ending is uh, a part of the episode that I, I don't quite... Get on, get my head around. Straker has essentially realised that the link is the rock, so he's gone back to the the set of his office in this this other TV show that he's supposedly an actor in. He's reliving the events up to the point where he he sort of jumped a time track and uh, and the director yelled cut with the aim of smashing the rock. General Almighty Henderson. Every man and woman in shadow is my and so, oh, there's some wonderful, there's some wonderful directorial shots in this. It's beautifully directed, and now we have more and more of the film crew being replaced by shadow personnel, perhaps hinting that he's coming closer and closer back to reality. It just feels a bit unlikely that he would be able to find the rock within his delusion. Because just because in his mind he thinks he's back in his office or the set of his office, that doesn't necessarily mean that he is where he thinks he is. We saw earlier Conroy thought he was in a Wild West town when he clearly wasn't. Um, also, and he's now broken the rock, he's back in his office. There is a trail of destruction throughout his office and the control room to the point where Straker is now in his office alone with Henderson and there are guards at the door ready to kill him if he is still crazy. So, does this mean that his trip around the studio actually happened for real? Hold it. I'm assuming not, because that meant that he would have been sat in a viewing theatre on his own for ten minutes and Shadow completely failed to capture him. But... Equally, the control room is a mess. Things have been smashed. Tapes have been ripped out of the computers. Um, he seemed to regain control. I thought he was going to finish me. Paul Foster has a massive bruise on the side of his head, and there's some people bleeding and uh, and similar. I just don't. I don't know how his his actions in his dream related to what he apparently was doing in the real world. How any of this damage equates to his actions. The only sort of direct cause 
between Straker doing something in his dream and what's happened in reality is this massive bruise on Foster's head. Conroy must have found it somewhere near that UFO wreck. I also have to question the fact that this is the second episode on the trot where General Henderson has watched Straker have a complete mental breakdown to the point of almost killing him and he still is left in charge of Shadow. And in the earliest episodes, it was obvious Henderson wanted Straker gone. And here and in Time Lash, well, maybe not so much in Time Lash, he's got, like, you know, the bruises essentially to prove that this man can be dangerous, and he doesn't seem to act on it. But again, as with most of the Anderson shows, they would be shown in random order, so we couldn't really have direct episode-to-episode -episode continuity. It's a fantastic episode, but this ending is just slightly too convenient, slightly too muddled for me to really be on board with it. However, all that said, this is still my favourite episode of UFO. Uh, has always been, I think, since the very first time I saw the show in well, 1998, I would have first seen this episode. Beautifully directed, some fantastic ideas especially with regarding the um, the hallucinations, what the what characters think they're seeing, and essentially the second half of the episode taking us on a tour of the Century 21 studio set up at Pinewood. Such an inspired concept, so wonderful to see all of those sets that we've seen for the previous 24 episodes suddenly we know the shape of them, we know the location of them, we know exactly how they were set up. Wonderful stuff. Brilliant idea, brilliant episode, brilliant show.